Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Reports Weekly Technology Report. I'm your host, Vago Muradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Joining us today is Tom Siebel, the chairman and CEO of C3AI, an artificial intelligence company he founded in 2009, three years after selling the company he founded in 1993, the customer relations management software company Siebel Systems to Oracle. He launched his new company for energy and diagnostic applications, but has since grown dramatically, including through its Pentagon business and is now valued at about $3 billion and is one of the world's world's leading AI firms that's pursuing a market that is now much bigger this year than even it was last year. Tom, welcome back to the program. It's always a pleasure having you on. Thank you, Vago. Great to be here. Uh, And before we get started, our daily podcast is sponsored by Bell. Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. Uh, Tom, um, always a pleasure having you on the program, for uh, especially in an important time, talking about it as important a subject as uh, AI. Obviously, this has been uh, an important story for a long period of time, but it's because of large language models like ChatGPT and generative AI that folks are increasingly talking about it. And and increasingly, uh, the public is worrying uh, on the one hand, and and sadly, as opposed to seeing AI as a critical enabler, is increasingly seeing it as a threat. Uh, And meanwhile, uh, lawmakers uh, are working on regulation, and I'll get to that in in just a moment. How, How does generative AI, large language models, Right. How do, how do we need to be thinking about the space today than even how we were thinking about the space uh, six months ago or, or, you know, a year ago? Well, as we've seen the evolution of uh, artificial intelligence uh, from, you know, supervised, unsupervised learning to supervised learning to deep learning to neural networks, to reinforcement learning, and now generative AI, as we've seen these advancements, uh, these technologies have become increasingly powerful. Uh, generative AI is a step function, however. It, it's a big deal. So you should think about this as, as significant as maybe the steam engine, the printing press, uh, the internet. This is a this is a big one, and it changes everything. Uh, so this is a very powerful technology with enormous um, opportunities uh, for beneficial applications. Uh, however, enormous opportunities for deleterious application uh, uh, about which we should be very concerned. Right when you say the step change. I think people sometimes don't recognize that AI has been playing an important role in their lives for many years, right? Siri, Alexa, navigation, data and trend analyses, banking, caller assistance, right, are one degree or another of AI. What is generative AI? Uh, why is generative AI such a step change? Well, these large language models and generative pre-trained, generative, uh, pre-trained transformers allow us to deploy applications where it will be you know, impossible for people to distinguish between news and fake news. It'll be, you know, it'll be impossible for people to distinguish whether they're talking to a computer or they're talking to a human being. So these will pass the Turing test. And, you know, we, um, and these technologies can be used in some, you know, enormously uh, malevolent ways. 
uh, calling into question, you know, issues related to privacy, individual individual privacy, uh, security, uh, cybersecurity, and fundamentally calling into question whether it's possible to conduct a, uh, a free and open democratic society uh, as these technologies get misused by bad actors. There are concerns that people have about all the negative implications, right? What are some of the very tangible benefits? Because it seems as though folks are focusing more, and, it, and it's important, obviously, to know what the negatives are. But what are actually the enormous positives we also need to be focusing uh, on uh, that should shape us? I'm going to get to regulation in a moment. But, w- but what are all of the positives that actually can come from this technology as well? Well, I think people are primarily concerned about the capability of these, um, these artificial intelligence engines, including uh, generative AI, to replace inter- uh, human intelligence. I think the real opportunity is to augment human intelligence, whether you are a writer, whether you're a script writer, whether you're an author, whether you're a journalist, whether you're a physician, or you're, or you're running the Department of Defense. Uh, you know, these technologies will augment our capabilities and make us much more effective at what we do. Those are the nature of the opportunities. And we will, you know, we will just like the, the advent of the iPhone, say in 2007, you know, being one a big step forward in smartphone technology took us from millions of people accessing computers to billions of people accessing computers. I think, um, you know, these new AI technologies, they'll be immediately available to billions of people around the world to make them more effective at what they do. So looking at how to regulate it, right? The Biden administration uh, just this week rela- uh, released its uh, responsible uh, artificial intelligence approach. Congress has been holding hearings. Senate Majority Leader uh, Schumer, the New York Democrat, has outlined a plan uh, that would make algorithms more transparent. What does responsible AI regulation look like that guards against the potentially dangerous without st- stifling innovation, right? Because if if this is the next steam engine, do you want it to go through all of its iterations in terms of benefiting society? Well, I think, you know, at the core of responsible uh, AI is the right to be forgotten. And so individuals need to be the right to be forgotten, to have all their their personal information, all their personal data, okay, basically expunged from publicly available data sources. That that's that I think that's that that's very easy. I think that you know at the core of um, uh, ethical AI is the um, a mandate that we do not um, use AI to promulgate um, social bias that are in data. Okay, and many of these applications do perpetuate social bias, and you know that's a problem. Um, I think that. You know, then when you get off the reservation and we start using these AI techniques for malevolent purposes, like they do in social media, where they have, you know, two or three billion people addicted to these technologies, causing, um, you know, even today, you know, we don't need generative AI for this, even today, where we have, you know, massive public health problems in, uh, particularly in young women, okay, suicide, depression, uh, body image issues. Uh, we have these technologies being used by bad actors to interfere in democratic societies and democratic elections, um, calling into question whether we can conduct a democratic society. So I think there's 
there's, you know, there's guardrails that we need to, we need to draw about what is lawful and what is unlawful. And then we simply need to enforce the law. Let me ask you a question about the visibility question, right? Because this is all interlinked. You know, you, you talked about social uh, media, Vivek Murthy, the Surgeon General earlier uh, this week noted uh, that social media and, you know, too much screen time, right, is, is part of the, the, the challenge that is having a, a, a negative impact on, on children. Um, is visibility into the algorithms enough, right? And what does that tell us, even if you have that kind of access, right? Uh, for example, many commuter, commuters uh, will be surprised to learn that their navigation software isn't exclusively focused on getting them there fast enough, right? Because if it did that, then it might cause a traffic jam, for example. So it necessarily sends people the longer way around uh, in, in order to sort of handle traffic. Does visibility alone matter? Who should be doing the regulating, right? And and what what parts of it need regulating? Or are we not looking at this in as broad a way that we need to be looking at it these in terms of regulating? These discussions that we're going to mandate that all these algorithms be explainable. I mean, this is just absolute total bunk. And every regulator that talks about it uh, doesn't know what they're talking about. Every congressperson who talks about it doesn't know what he or she is talking about. And every company, okay, be it IBM or whoever it may be, that claims that you know that explainable AI is one of their primary tenets. I mean, they're just lying to the marketplace because these technologies, when we get into deep learning, when we get into neural networks, when we get into the, these generative pre-trained transformers, these the results that are coming from these algorithms are simply inexplicable, hard stop. They cannot right. be explained. And people use them every day. At the same time, they claim that we're going to mandate explainable AI. So it's just a big lie, Vago. And that's a, it, it's a cop-out and it's a lie. So what are the ways to do this? So you so is it better to be looking at outputs? What what's the the framework we should be using? Because right at, at some point you could end up in a bad place if you don't have the philosophically right approach and approaches across all the domains that it's touching, right? Because it is beyond just the social media problem. It's beyond right. I mean this this is kind of a broader challenge. Well, I think that you know some of these discussions, candidly, about regulating AI are the people who are talking about them either don't know what they're talking about or they have people involved who do know what they're talking about and they're disingenuous. Uh, let's take, for example, this discussion that we are going to form a federal agency or some sort of regulatory body that is going to regulate the publication of algorithms in the United States. Now, I don't know how many hundreds of millions of algorithms they have published in the United States every day, but it's order of hundreds of millions. And the idea that, you know, it's, it is impossible to distinguish between what is AI and what is not as it relates to an algorithm. This idea that we're gonna set up some kind of federal algorithm administration, and we're going to have uh, regulators and bureaucrats opine and certify the safety of algorithms before they published. I mean, this is just crazy talk. The numbers are too big. I mean, it's impossible. Come on, they can't even process uh, passports today. They can't even process aircraft registrations. The idea that they're going to deal with hundreds of millions of algorithms that they couldn't possibly understand is simply crazy talk. 
And now the, uh, and, and it's very interesting to see these technology leaders who candidly are pandering to the regulators saying, you know, we have technology leaders and we all know who they are, are sitting before Congress and said, oh, please regulate us, please regulate us, when they know that they're playing rope-a-dope with the Congress because right. it's, it, the numbers are too big, it can't possibly be regulated. So either either we're doing, we're doing two things, we're either offshoring all, you, you, you can't regulate, you know, fundamental science in this way. It's happening too fast. This is happening at a, at a speed that was, you know, historically unimaginable. And so either we're moving all innovation all offshore or we're criminalizing science. So the, I think that these technology leaders who are testifying before Congress to the fact that please regulate us, I mean, they're playing rope-a-dope with the Congress and the Congress is lapping it up. Um, so, but what are some tenets that everybody has to bear in mind in order to be able to write uh, accurately or as thoughtfully as possible regulate this? Is it does it need to be something international? Is it on the output side of it? Um, because I think when people start to try to think about how to regulate, I mean, the the question is how how do you how do you eat this elephant, Tom? I guess, it right? Is, what is it folks should be it, bearing in it mind? Is to do it is very difficult. And there needs to be some thought given to this because this is more powerful than nuclear energy. This is a big one. This is bigger than, than, than electricity and urban electrification. So, you know, thought needs to be given to it. We clearly need the right to be forgotten. Okay, we, right. we, 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 that, that is for sure. Okay, but we need to describe, you know, what the effects of it are. Okay, and certain effects seem to be, need to be unlawful. Okay, propagating, in my opinion, perpetuating cultural bias, I think should be unlawful. Um, I think that when you're, when you're having known, um, you know, uh, it's proving a health hazard to large members, uh, to large components of the population, it needs to be unlawful. Uh, when it, you know, so I think that we need to describe things when it interferes with election process, it needs to be unlawful. And then we need to enforce the law kind of independent of whether it's a Democrat doing it or a Republican doing it or a radical doing it. We need to enforce the law. So, so then your point is, as opposed to dealing with the, um, so shape the algorithm by highlighting the specific negative outcomes that you do not want it to do is a better way of doing it than, than looking at, uh, you know, and, and then of course, data expiration laws and, and a ways to exit it, right? I mean, I think that any, every, anybody who's engaged in unfortunately, right? I mean, it is, it, it's enormously beneficial, the condition we've created for ourselves, but it's also terrifying because there is no way to be lost, right? Uh, one, one way or another, I'm being tracked by my phone, I'm being tracked by my easy pass, I don't have to wait, 40 minutes to pay a toll, but then folks know exactly where I am at, at all times. So it, it's more sort of constraining the negative specific outcomes that you want, as opposed to necessarily um, trying to govern the technology itself. I think it's a tractable problem because I think the technology, we're going into the great unknown very, very quickly at massive speed, at, you know, at warp speed, and nobody can anticipate where this goes. And honestly, People can't even explain what these technologies do today. Nobody can explain what these large language models do, what these generative pre-trained transformers do. It's inexplicable. Okay. However, there are there are effects of these algorithms that we can clearly define as unlawful. How about right. you know uh, uh, slander, 
liable, besmirching somebody's reputation, interfering in election, okay, affecting public health. This should be unlawful. Okay, it's easily provable, and they should take people who do that, and they should put them in prison. Um, do our, given the speed at which this is, uh, the technology is advancing, right? There are those who've said, well, look, I mean, concerns that the technology will suddenly become sentient, regard humans as vermin to be exterminated, uh, is, uh, you know, overblown. And then there are others who say that this technology is moving so fast, and when we don't know exactly. How serious are the wider dangers of this that seem more akin to science fiction fears, whether it's the use of the technology and weapons or anything else that becomes a palpable danger to humanity? Um, where do you see that danger beyond that which you've already discussed, right? So when you put your Tom circa 2033 hat on, what are what are the real deeper and even unanticipated dangers that we should be guarding against, right? Because there is, there's some technologists and the way they respond to it, people are saying, okay, look, I mean, this is a little overblown. I don't think that we need to be concerned anytime soon about our smart refrigerator taking control of the house. Okay, so that that's kind of the, I, I don't think that happens soon, but I think that there are applications of these technologies for example, social compliance scoring, okay? It's being used in China today, okay, to decide who gets to go to college, who gets to travel, who gets a visa, who can get insurance, okay? It has been considered for use in the United States by leaders in the United States. Uh, we, will use, we will use these technologies to dramatically improve healthcare, to provide, you know, lower costs, more efficacious healthcare, to much larger, including historically underserved populations. However, the consequences of this, these technologies will also be used by private enterprise and by um, single care providers to, um, ration, to ration healthcare. And so I, I think the practical applications of these technologies, really the way they can be used today are very concerning the way they're used today in social media. Come on, everybody knows this is a problem and nobody's doing anything about it. As we as we as we, as it relates to applications of these technologies in the defense sector, as will we use them in the kill chain, okay, without humans in the loop, because we're dealing with hypersonics and we're dealing with decisions that will be made in milliseconds, if not microseconds, as we deal to with 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 space and swarms and, um, uh, and um, you know, autonomous uh, uh, subsurface vehicles, et cetera. Um, you know, this gets very concerning when we're launching, you know, hundreds of thousands to millions of things that behave in swarms, cost maybe a dollar a piece, uh, travel at hypersonic speeds and are making decisions by themselves. So be afraid. And, and will there now in the United States, I think it is not unquestionable that we have, you know, people in, in the Western world, okay, in Western Europe and in, in the United States that have very uh, serious and, and they take this very seriously, okay, the ethical guardrails that they put on these technologies. Now, unfortunately, you know, many of the uh, people with whom they are in competition, be it the Chinese, the Iranians, Russians, or uh, North Koreans who have equal access to these technologies, they, do not, they don't have these ethical guardrails. So 
it, it's, it's, it's a little scary. Is there any global uh, approach that could be set up where you could leverage different kinds of pressures, even on bad actors, to try to contain them? It's hard to believe. I mean, how do you contain Al Qaeda? How do you how do you contain China? How do you contain Putin? I mean, these you know, uh, how do you contain the Iranians? I mean, sure, you could have some you know meaningless drivel you know discussed at the level of the United Nations, but there's no good faith there. And uh, you know, these people are playing by different rules, and they have different goals, and they are adversaries. You've talked about broad sort of societally destabilizing uh, things and, and large scale unemployment is a concern uh, for lawmakers uh, that that AI technology actually not just can cost jobs, but actually good paying jobs, whether they're for lawyers or nurses or contracts folks, uh, what, what have you. Any te- technology, game changing technology changes employment, eliminates some jobs, creates uh, changes them or creates new ones. What are the jobs that are most vulnerable what are the jobs that get created right um because losing a large number of jobs in a short period of time is again societally destabilizing well i think that as we've seen technologies this important historically be it movable type the steam engine the chicard loom the production line uh the automobile uh, the the mass-produced automobile okay these technologies have replaced, have, have eliminated jobs. Now, for every job they've eliminated, however, they've created another 100 to 1,000 jobs. And this, we'll look at, see the Industrial Revolution for details. Now, the, um, uh, so now we are, you know, rapidly accelerating in the post-industrial society. And these technologies will replace some jobs, no question about it. But for every job that they replace, they will uh, they'll create, I would say, you know, order of a thousand jobs. And so as a leader, as a political leader, as a corporate leader, as a philanthropic leader, okay, it's incumbent upon us, okay, to, to retrain our workforces so that they can take advantage of these new technologies to be more effective at what they do. Who hasn't figured out how to use the Google search engine to be more effective at what they do? Who hasn't figured out how to use the smartphone all over the world to figure out how more effective what they do? And as it relates to these AI engines, okay, and large language and LLMs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and the next generation of these things that we can't imagine yet, uh, we need to make it so that we need to assure that these people have the skills so that they can use these tools to be more effective, more productive members of society and not simply displaced. Um, Over the past year or so, it was in late 21, you guys won a $500 million DOD order just recently. Congratulations are in order. You guys are the first and only company the US Air Force has selected for its predictive maintenance. What are the next batch of applications, Tom, that are ripe uh, for the thoughtful application of trusted AI, right? Uh, because ultimately, at the end of the day, that's the key word. Well, in the military application, defense intelligence applications are, uh, I mean, that's really a, a field that's ripe for AI and essential that we adopt these technologies Um because if we don't, we will get rolled by the Chinese. Now, the most recent development was that the uh, 
the Secretary of the Air Force or the Chief uh, announced that you know C3AI had been adopted as the uh, system of record uh, for the United States Air Force for all um, uh, predictive maintenance. So I think that's the only AI system of record in all of DoD today. Um, the but you know contested logistics, uh, supply chain optimization. Uh, 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 um, uh, you know, workforce management as it relates to the warfighter of the future. So these are all kind of very uh, um, command and control dashboards, multi-domain command and control, JADC2 type problems. So these are, I think, the most ripe applications for uh, artificial intelligence in the defense community. And we are actively engaged in all of these discussions today. Is, is um, you know, Congress, uh, last we spoke, we discussed a little bit um, Congress's interest uh, in trying to curb or, or at least better understand, right? Because every office, every other office in the Pentagon, right? I mean, there were some 600 some odd AI efforts uh, as offices uh, across the OD were trying to work their own AI uh, solutions. I know this might sound self-serving by some in the audience that I'm asking one of the nation's leading AI uh, CEOs about this. But at the end of the day, the concern was whether or not the effort was simply being wasted, uh, right? Are we making any more progress to being a little bit more sensible, uh, you know, where every other office isn't trying to reinvent the wheel uh, on its own because you're, you've made a degree of investment that almost nobody else has made in developing those algorithms that allow you to do this work uh, in, in a predictable, right, with real, real world deliverables to them? Are we making any, any progress in sort of making heads or tails and being a little more disciplined? We are, we are Vago. We're making a lot of progress in the Department of Defense. Just And the Department of Defense is going through the same process the private sector did, which was, you know, you, you build it yourself, build it yourself, build it yourself, and you fail, 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 fail. And then you finally, you know, you, you purchase a solution from a commercial off-the-shelf software vendor. Now, DOD does have 600 projects to, to try to build this from scratch, but more and more of what we're seeing is these guys there, you know, we get at the level of, you know, the secretary of defense or the undersecretary or the secretary of the air force, and they've had it. Okay. And they want these systems live and they want these systems live now. And we see there's an organization that's being extraordinarily effective in Washington, DC. And this is this CDAO common DOD AI office where they are in the process of developing a common AI platform standard for use in all applications, be it contested logistics, Army, Navy, Air Force, Space Force, Cybercom, et cetera. And uh, so I think the work that they're doing uh, with uh, Greg Little and Craig Martell is kind of game-changing, I think, for DOD. And they're making just a ton of progress in, in getting the Department of Defense to standardize on um, sensible technologies and deliver, you know, highly efficacious solutions, efficacious solutions quickly. Are, are we from the very top of government? I mean, this administration has made a focus uh, on cyber AI, on quantum, uh, the likes of which I think we haven't seen in, in a long time. Are we moving fast enough to embrace the technology and leverage it? 
I'm not sure that quantum is quite there yet, but in terms of the application of of AI to uh, cyber war and cybersecurity, I think there is a very advanced thought going on uh, in that area by some very competent people uh, in and around the Beltway. And so I think the level and quality of thought that we're seeing being given to that is really quite impressive. And um, it's, you know, these people are pretty steely eyed. They know exactly what they're doing. They seem to be doing a fine job of leveraging the private sector to their advantage. And uh, I think that there's uh, just a ton of progress being made. Um, let me uh, take you to uh, one uh, last question, which you alluded to earlier uh, about adversaries. Uh, obviously, they have different approaches, right? China, Russia, uh, China and Russia nefariously using it to control their own people. Uh, Iran, not exactly a responsible actor and and uh, North Korea, a dangerous one. One of the things we're seeing in some of these large language models is um, that it's really reducing barriers to entry, uh, right? Some of these models can be created by tens of millions of dollars as opposed to multi-billion dollar investments, which is what you've made in, in developing your algorithms. How, how does this change the nature of the threat and the threat vectors that we could actually see in a short period of time if, if you can leverage these, um, the, leverage the technology, right, for, for great good, but also potentially for great evil? It, it, it's hard to overstate uh, how these tech, you know, the importance and the impact of these technologies that are fully in the hands of bad actors. Now, we invented these technologies in the Western world. We invented them in Western Europe and the United States, all these AI technologies. But we have also trained and all these people, you know, these people in China, they've trained at, you know, at Stanford, they trained at Carnegie Mellon, they, they've trained at, you know, Imperial College and King's College. And we have, they have all the tools. There are no secrets here. Okay. We have provided all the tools and these people are extraordinarily well-trained. They have, a, they're extraordinarily well-funded. They have a very clear direction uh, coming in these five-year plans and coming from G and the NRDC and what have you. And uh, they are capable of, they, they work tirelessly. They're extraordinarily competent. Uh, they, there are no tools that we have that they don't have at, uh, immediately available to them. And so be afraid because they, they can innovate. They can work hard. They, they're tireless workers. They are, they are focused and they are playing the long game. And if we take our eye off the ball, we are going to get rolled. Um, let me let me ask then. I, I said that was my last question. Let me ask one one more question. Um, mutual assured destruction, um, as terrifying as it was, maintained the peace. And when it comes to nuclear warfare, uh, the terrifying nature of it is unfortunately um, right boils down to arsenals and side of size of arsenals uh and you don't use them on me because i've got a lot of weapons i will unleash them on you do do we need to be thinking in a mutual assured destruction sort of way if we are to curb bad actors somehow i mean i'm not necessarily uh, a person to be arguing for arms races uh or ai races but again i think we're engaged in an ai race 
what's the the key to this and how do you measure advantage tom right uh and how do you then have to work with allies and partners as well right because this may be all of us against all of them whether we like it or not right how do how do we need to think about the the deterrence aspect of this and how to bring our allies and partners together as we do this our adversaries need to know that if they cross the line and for example i mean come on the russians could they could they could they could shut down the us power grid from a you know a cell phone in st petersburg in 10 minutes and everybody knows it okay and the and the um you know if they did that by the way 9 out of 10 people in the united states die if you shut down the grid okay within a year they die uh, now the you know they need to know unquestionably know that if somebody crosses that line the consequences are going to be immediate and unthinkable and that that is the only way that we will be safe okay and our people in cybersecurity and in defense need to be they need to be their job is to assure that we have this capability and our adversaries need to know that we have this capability so they don't cross the line because that's the only way we're going to be safe um, thanks so very much for joining us. It's always an honor and pleasure having you on the program. Uh, I could continue uh, the conversation for another hour, but unfortunately, we're out of time, and so are you. Thanks so very much for joining us. It's always a pleasure. Thank you, Vago.